Right, good morning. Welcome to uh, SOMA. I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you guys uh, for making it out this morning. Uh, we are, as, as you heard from what Caitlin read, uh, at the very end of Matthew chapter 7, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you've been here over the past, really, seven, eight months, we've been in this sermon. We've been looking at this sermon that Jesus preached at the beginning of his ministry. It's the longest recorded sermon, I believe, in the entire Bible. And we've heard him talk about his kingdom. We've heard him talk about his kingdom that's breaking in. That's breaking in not just in uh, Jerusalem, not just in first century Palestine where he was, but has broken into Indianapolis, has broken into Nicaragua where, where Hannah's going, is bro- breaking in, has broken in, and is breaking in, and is spreading globally all throughout the world as he works through his campaign to make all things right and to make all things new. And we've looked at Matthew chapter 5 through 7 of this vision that Jesus lays out for life in his kingdom. This vision that Jesus lays out for the fully human life that we've been created for. So now we come to the end of of Matthew chapter 7 with these two little verses at the very end, verses 28 and 29. As I said, I'm a a pastor here. Uh, One of the other words for pastor in the New Testament is elder. Um, I'm not elderly by the standards of some congregations, but with this church, I am probably older than a lot of you guys. Just turned 39 years old, which means that when I was a kid, I had to deal something that a lot of, with something that a lot of you have only heard about. I had to watch commercials on television. And I don't mean just commercials like, okay, there's the little ad between the YouTube videos and then you can skip it after three seconds. I don't mean you DVR'd something and then you skip through the commercial. We didn't have DVR when I was growing up. And so you'd be sitting there and you'd be watching a game or you'd be watching a show on TV and you would have to sit through two, three, sometimes four minutes of commercials. Barefoot in the snow, uphill both ways. (laughs) It was a travesty, right? So what did you do? You learned to maximize your time. You learned to take advantage of that commercial break. You, you ran to the restroom. You went to the kitchen. You got a drink. You, you just checked out for a couple minutes until Saved by the Bell came back on. And, and here's the thing about that. There are a lot of passages in the scriptures that we kind of treat like a commercial break. We treat like it's just kind of a, a little intermission at a play. It's a, it's a chance to catch our breath. It's a chance to, to check out for a couple minutes, go get some popcorn. And that's how we might naturally approach these two verses that we're looking at today. Just a chance to to check out. These are just a bridge to move on to the next thing. Let's get on to the next story. Let's wrap up the sermon. I mean, Jesus has been preaching for three chapters straight. Let's get on to the next thing. But here's the thing. If you do that, if you jump over these verses, you might actually miss the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. These two verses are vitally important for our understanding of everything we've looked at over the last eight months because they bring to the fore the the question that Jesus has been driving throughout the entire sermon. They ask you and me and everybody who hears this, they ask the question, how will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to him? see, here's the thing about preaching a sermon. When I preach a sermon or when Pastor Brandon preaches a sermon or when anyone else stands up here and preaches a sermon, the goal of the sermon is not just for you to sit there politely and try not to fall asleep. And the point of the sermon is not just for you to come away feeling inspired or even to come away knowing more stuff. The point of hearing the word of God is to have our lives changed by the word of God. 
The, the, the point of listening to a sermon or listening to God's word is to respond to the sermon. And that's what this passage shows us. This passage shows us how the people who heard this sermon responded to it. And it begs the question for every single one of us, how will I respond? How will I respond to this good news of the kingdom of God? How will you respond to this king who invites you into his kingdom? Last week, we looked at the very end of the, of the sermon, verse 24 to 27. Will you build your house on the rock or will you build your house on the sand? Will you build your life on Jesus and his teaching, or will you build your life on something else? And so these two verses then, verses 28 and 29, zero in on that question, and they ask you and me the fundamental question that we have to answer, how will I respond to Jesus? How will I respond to the authority of this king? So that's some of the two things we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the authority of Jesus and then we're going to ask the question that naturally flows from that, how will you respond to him? The authority of Jesus, and how will you respond to him? First, the authority of Jesus. You see that he talks about it here. He was teaching with authority. This whole sermon is about the authority of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the entire gospel of Matthew is about the authority of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is not just some nice religious principles. It's not just some nice moral tidbits. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. It's about how God is bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, how it's invading everything, how he calls us into that kingdom, and how that kingdom changes everything. But for some of us, we want the kingdom without the king. We want the stuff that Jesus talks about. We want mercy, and we want forgiveness, and we want flourishing, and we want hope, but we don't want Jesus. We don't want a king, but there can be no kingdom without the king. The authority of Jesus is all over this sermon. As a matter of fact, the authority of Jesus is all over the way that Matthew tells the story in the Gospel of Matthew. If you go back sometime and you read the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is telling us very, something very intentional about Jesus. He tells us how Jesus was born in Bethlehem and how his parents fled with him to Egypt and how then God brought him safely out of Egypt and how Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and how God the Father then speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and how the Holy Spirit, the spirit of anointing and power and kingship descends on Jesus and how then Jesus goes out to the desert to conquer all the temptations of the devil and how he comes back and he calls 12 disciples and now he goes to a mountain to preach this sermon sermon where he calls people into his kingdom and if you were a first century jew if you were one of jesus's contemporaries and you were paying attention you would say i've heard this story before i've heard a story about a king named david who was born in bethlehem who was anointed with the spirit of god who conquered the enemies of god's people I've heard about the 12 tribes of Israel who went down to Egypt and God brought them out of Egypt. And I've heard how God brought them safely through the desert and through the Jordan River. And I've heard how God brought them to a mountain and he spoke to them through a man named Moses and he said, you are going to be my kingdom of priests. I have heard about this God who speaks to us from the mountain and calls us into his kingdom. And now it looks like he's doing it again. Or at least this guy who's standing here on the mountain talking to us wants us to think that that's what's happening. See, friends, that's why Jesus talks the way that he does all throughout this sermon. He's not pretending to be a great religious teacher. 
He is assuming that he speaks with the very authority of God. Look again, verse 28. And when he had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus doesn't teach like a religious teacher. He didn't teach like the religious teachers in first century Palestine. He hasn't taught like any other religious teacher in the history of the world before or since. It says he didn't teach like the scribes. Okay, so the scribes, the scribes were the religious teachers of Jesus' day. They spent their lives studying the Hebrew scriptures. And they didn't just study the, the Hebrew scriptures, they studied other teachers and what other teachers had said about the scriptures. And here's why, because Jewish society was based on the Torah. It was based on the law of Moses. The law of Moses was first five books of the Bible. It was the constitution of ancient Israel. But it was written 1,500 years before Christ. And so for 1,500 years, you had these lawyers who studied the law and who studied precedent based on previous rulings about that law. It's kind of like what a constitutional lawyer does today. It's kind of like what a Supreme Court justice is supposed to do today. They take the Constitution and they apply it to issues and questions facing society and they rule on what's constitutional and what's not. And anytime they would make a ruling, they would refer back. They would have this legal argument and they would say, well, there was this precedent set here and so-and-so said this and Rabbi such-and-such said this. And they would argue and they would always point back to what came before. And then there's Jesus. And that is not at all what Jesus does. Jesus has never been to seminary. He's never been to law school. He has never taken the bar exam. He is a completely uneducated blue-collar worker from a redneck town out in the middle of nowhere. And he doesn't say, this is what the rabbi said. This is what the scribe said. This is what this scholar said. He doesn't even say, this is what Moses said. He said, I say to you. I say to you, I speak with my own authority. I don't need to appeal to anyone else's teaching. I don't need to appeal to any higher authority because there isn't any higher authority to appeal to. I'm the king, and I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. I say to you. Now, do you see why they were so astonished? Do you see why they were so shocked? Nobody else talked like this. Jesus says, I have come to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth because I am the king of heaven and earth. I know better than your religious teachers. I know better than your legal experts. I'm the king and I'm calling you into my kingdom. So follow me. Stake your life on me. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you see this. The Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are those who what? Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. That is crazy talk. Blessed are, if I said that to you, blessed are you, you're going to be happy if you're tortured for my sake. You would think I was either crazy or I was some deranged egomaniac. But Jesus says it without batting an eye. All throughout chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Chapter 7, verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. What Jesus is saying is that on the day of judgment, people are going to recognize that he is the God of the universe, that he is the judge of the living and the dead, and our entire lives depend on how we respond to him. See, guys, we don't get to have just a halfway Jesus. We don't get to have a Jesus who's just a great moral teacher. A man who is a great moral teacher would never say it's a good thing if you're tortured for me. 
A man who was a great moral teacher would never say, I'm the king of the universe and I'm going to judge the living and the dead. If he was just a mere human being who said those things, it would be insane. It would be evil for him to say those things. And yet this is exactly what he says all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This is what sets Jesus apart. This is what makes him utterly unique in the history of the world. He wasn't like the teachers in first century Judaism. He's not like any other religious teacher in the history of the world. I mean, just take them on their own terms. Read the great religious teachers of the world. Look at Buddha. Look at Confucius. Look at Muhammad. What are they all doing? They're all pointing away from themselves. They're trying to point people to God. They're trying to point people to the divine. They're trying to point people to oneness with the universe. Jesus is exactly the opposite. Jesus doesn't say, look over there. He says, look right here. He says, if you want to know God, you've got to know me. If you want to see what God is like, look at me. Now, those are audacious claims. And for many of us, that's the biggest hang-up we have with Christianity, right? Spirituality is fine. Religion's okay as long as you keep it in its proper place. But, But all this talk about Jesus becoming the authority in my life, that is a bridge too far. As 21st century Americans, we have been conditioned to think that authority is oppressive, that, that, that submitting to the, to the rule of a king is a subhuman way to live. Right? I mean, we fought a revolution for this. We threw tea into Boston Harbor to get rid of kings. We are the land of the free. Think about the stories we hear from the youngest age. My three-year-old daughter uh, just discovered the Little Mermaid, the Disney edition. And so, like, this is a big deal in our house. She walks around, she tries to sing like Ariel. She wants a fishtail like Ariel. I mean, Ariel is a really big deal in our house. But the whole premise of The Little Mermaid is that Ariel's father, King Triton, doesn't want her to follow her heart. He, he just doesn't, he's out of touch. He doesn't want her to follow her dreams. He's scared of losing her. He's out of touch with what's best for her. And so what do you find? Of course, in true Disney fashion, Ariel follows her heart. She knows better than her father, and she finds freedom in getting rid of his authority. Do you see what I'm saying? You and I are indoctrinated with that story from the time we are children. I am not telling you to boycott Disney. Uh, I don't think I could survive as a parent without Disney and their indoctrinating DVDs. So that is not (laughs) what I'm saying. What I am saying is this, pay attention, like, pay attention to the the voices around you. We have been conditioned as a society to believe that authority is a bad thing. And of course, the irony of that is that we only believe that based on the authority of what society tells us, based on the story that we have been told as modern Americans. See, we all know authority can be bad, definitely. Authority can be corrupted. Authority can be abusive. We see evidence of that all the time. But authority can also be a good thing. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But here's the one thing I just want you to see for right now. Authority is inevitable. Authority is unavoidable. You you have to believe something. You have to live your life based on something. As that great theologian Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. The question is not, what authority are you going to live under? Or do I want to live under authority? It's what authority do I want to live under? We say, I'm not going to live under anyone's authority. But the truth is, everybody lives under some authority. You have something that is dominating your life. You have something that frames existence for you. You have something that is ultimate. You have something that defines the decisions you make. You have something that paints a picture of what life is really all about. It might be the expectations of your family. 
It might be the expectations of your career path. It might be simply the expectations of what it means to be an enlightened, tolerant, open-minded person in our society. But there is some authority telling you how to think. There is some authority trying to disciple you into its vision of the good life. How do you interpret reality? How do you make sense out of life? How do you decide what to do and what not to do? Those are all questions of authority. Those are all questions we all have to answer. Those are all questions that you and I are answering every day, whether we think about it or not. You grew up most likely under the authority of your parents or whoever it was that raised you. You saw the world pretty much the way that, that they saw it. Even if they tried not to be authoritative, all right? Even if they tried to be those cool, laid-back, free-range kind of parents, that you, you inevitably began to see the world the way that they saw it. Then you hit that time of enlightenment known as adolescence, and you decided possibly to react against the way that your parents saw the world. You moved away. You went to, you went to college, and authority changed. Your, your, your professors or your frat brothers, your sorority sisters took the place of authority and you began to see the world the way they saw it and you began to conform to their norms and their expectations. You moved to the city and, and your neighbors and your co-workers became your authority or maybe your social networks became your authority or maybe your late night talk show hosts became your authority. And on and on and on it goes. However you make sense out of the world, However you face the realities of life, whatever framework centers your life, that is your authority. It is inescapable. It is not a function of our environment or our education. Some of us want to live in the city because we don't like the authority we experienced when we, when we were growing up in a small town. But you've just traded one authority for another went home to, to visit my parents last week. So I grew up in this tiny little town. It's actually a village in western New York. Like my hometown is so small it doesn't even have a real stoplight. It's got a blinker. It's got one blinker in the center of town. And there's this prevailing view of society. There's this prevailing view of the good life. There are these sets of expectations for what life is all about there. I also lived for a few years in New York City. I lived surrounded by people who were running from their past, who wanted to get rid of all those oppressive authority structures they grew up with. They wanted to reinvent themselves. They wanted to live life on their own terms. But when you really paid attention to what they were doing, they just traded one set of authority structures for another. They just traded the expectations of a small town for the expectations of a global city. Everybody is operating under some kind of authority. It is inescapable. And so we've got to ask the question, what's the authority in my life? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever asked the question, why do I think about the world the way that I do? Why do I make the decisions that I do? If you haven't, if you can't answer that question, that doesn't mean that there isn't any authority in your life. It just means that you've never thought about it. It just means you're never paying attention. It just means that, that you're living what Socrates called the unexamined life. But Jesus here is inviting us to the examined life. He is inviting us to the life worth living. He is inviting us to think about why we live the way that we do. He is inviting us into a better way to be human. Because the truth is, we are constantly hearing messages about what it means to be human. Every day, you and I are bombarded with messages about the good life. Apple releases a new iPhone. You line up around the block to get it. Why? Why? because they are selling you a story about the good life. Cosmo runs a cover story with the greatest, latest 
face-melting sex secrets and, and new fitness fads. But what are they doing? They're selling you a vision of happiness. New so-called story on social media. What's going on? Someone is trying to sell you a narrative. Someone is trying to tell you something about what's wrong with the world and how it can be made right again. Your company offers you the moon as long as you make some sacrifices to your family or your integrity. That guy or that girl that you work with gives you so much more attention than your spouse. They make you feel so alive. What is happening in all of those scenarios? You are being sold a lie about what it means to be fully human. Those voices and a million other voices like them are vying every day to be the authority in your life. They are trying to disciple you into their vision of life. And many of us go through life completely oblivious to it. We don't even realize the way that these things are influencing us and bringing us under their authority. And so the question is not, am I willing to live under someone's authority? The question is, whose authority do I want to live under? Do I want to live under the authority of a king who kills me or do I want to live under the authority of a king who gives me life? Because friends, if any of those other things are the authority in your life, they will eventually enslave you and they will eventually destroy you. The expectations of your family are the ultimate thing in your life. The expectations of your career are the ultimate thing in your, your life. If the expectations of anyone or anything other than Jesus is ultimate in your life, it will eventually hollow out your soul and it will take the life out of you. This is why some of us are sitting here thinking, this is why I live on my own terms. Because I don't want any other authority. I want to determine how I live. I read a quote from a celebrity in the New Yorker uh, a, f a few months ago. Absolutely fascinating celebrity. I've really enjoyed uh, following his, his work over the past few years. And, and this is what he said. I actually need to edit the quote for language. Um, but uh, this is basically what he said. He said, I travel around the world. I eat a lot of stuff and basically do whatever I want. That's the life we dream about, right? Doing whatever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want. No authority standing over me telling me how to live. Living like kings. Living life on my own terms. A celebrity's name is Anthony Bourdain. And I, like many of you, was hit really hard with the news Friday morning that he committed suicide in his hotel room in France. A man who seems so full of life, a man who brought a lot of joy to others and did a lot of good. Listen, suicide is a complex issue, and mental health and trauma and depression, all those are very, very complex issues, and it's something that affects Christians and non-Christians. Let me just ask you right now, if you're contemplating it, if you're struggling, if you're walking through that darkness, please don't try to bear it alone. Please talk to someone. Let us walk with you. Here's what concerns me for so many of us. Here's what concerns me, honestly, if I'm honest, for myself. Because so often I think if I could have that, I could be happy. If I could just do whatever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want, if I could just live life on my own terms, then I would escape the sadness and the darkness and the brokenness inside of me. Friends, please don't believe that lie. Please don't believe that lie trying to do it your way, trying to save yourself, trying to, trying to be your own king and just live on your own terms. It is the suicide of the soul. Even, even if you hold it together outwardly, even if you die of natural causes at 103, it'll still destroy your soul in the end. 
Jesus says, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to try to manage all that on your own. I have come to give you life and to give it to the fullest. He says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. That's the kind of king we're talking about. That's the kind of authority we're talking about. Every other authority, every other king will take your life from you. But in Jesus, you have a king who gave his life for you, who died so that you could live. It doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that you never struggle again. It doesn't mean that there is not still crushing darkness at times, but it does mean that you have a king who is there with you, who is fighting for you, who is loving you patiently, even in the darkest night of the soul. Think about what we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. When you are racked with paralyzing anxiety, you have a king who reminds you that your heavenly father is counting the very hairs on your head. When you are stressed out, worried about what other people think about you, you have a king who reminds you, your father sees you. Your father sees you and he loves you. When you feel completely helpless and hopeless, when you feel like your soul has been hollowed out, when you feel utterly spiritually bankrupt, you have a king who says the kingdom of heaven is for the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is for the ones who don't have anything left, who are completely spiritually bankrupt. When everything else in your life is falling apart, when everyone else walks out on you, you have a king who speaks with the very authority of God and says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's the kind of king we're talking about. Not a king who takes our life, a king who gives us life, a king who is with us in the midst of it. Listen, friends, the authority of Jesus can be, on the surface, a really hard pill to swallow at first. But when you really pay attention to what he's saying, it is the most beautiful, hopeful thing in all the world. It is the authority of the king who has come to set us free. John chapter 8, Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's a sin. Sin is simply just trying to live like our own king, trying to live life apart from the authority of God. He says, you think that that's the way to freedom, but it's the way to slavery. You'll be enslaved by that. But the Son has come to set you free. He has come to set you and me free from the things that are killing us. He has come to make us truly free and fully alive. Now, if that's true, or at least if that's what Jesus is claiming, then that calls for a response, doesn't it? I can't just sit here and hear those kind of claims and just kind of like walk away, oh, that's cool, and then just walk on with my day. If that's true, it changes everything. And so that's the question that this text begs. How will you respond? How will you respond to Jesus? What are we going to do with this man who makes these kind of life-changing, history-changing, world-changing claims? Because when you encounter Jesus, when you encounter the real Jesus, not some toned-down, edited version of Jesus, when you encounter the Jesus of history who lived in first-century Palestine, who said the things that he said, who did the things that he did, when you encounter that Jesus, you come to a crisis of faith. And you got to ask, who is this man? I can't just hear these things and go back to life as usual. I've got to respond. 
Look how they responded. Look how the people who heard the sermon responded to Jesus. Verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. They were astonished. They probably didn't even grasp how astonishing these things that Jesus was saying were, but they were astonished. They knew something astonishing, something unique, something out of the ordinary was happening, on, happening here. Let me ask you, let me ask you to ask yourself, have you ever been astonished by Jesus? Have you ever been astonished by Jesus? Not, not have you had some religious experiences, Not do you like to come to church. Not do you have all the right doctrine about Jesus. Have you been astonished by him? Have you encountered him the way that he really is? Because when you encounter him as he really is, he confronts something deep in your soul. There are a number of ways to be astonished about something. It's really interesting here. You read the rest of the the Gospel of Matthew. They had a lot of people who were astonished by Jesus, but they actually were astonished in different ways. They actually responded in different ways. Some people are astonished by Jesus. Some people encountered Jesus, and they actually hated him for it. They rejected him. They killed him. This is what the religious leaders did. They were astonished that Jesus would have the audacity to claim what he was claiming, and that's why they had him crucified. And maybe that's you today. Maybe for you, you read this, and you're like, this is insane. I can't accept this, and you're completely turned off to Jesus. Second group of people, they were astonished by Jesus. They were were amazed by the things that he did. But eventually, they just kind of moved on to other things. They were there for the sermon. They were there for the show. They liked to see the miracles. They liked to hear him preach. But they didn't actually follow him. They didn't actually come into his kingdom. This is, this is a really one that hits a lot of us right between the eyes. Because a lot of us like the religious experience of church. A lot of us like the experience of our missional community. Maybe you even like to listen to sermons. Maybe you're intrigued by spiritual things but you've never encountered Jesus in a way that you follow him. You've never trusted him enough to follow him, to come into the kingdom that he's inviting you into. And then there's there's this third group. And they were astonished by Jesus. They were absolutely wrecked by Jesus, and it changed them. It revolutionized their lives. It revolutionized their lives so much that it's like they were born again. They believed his claims, but they didn't just believe in an intellectual sense. They staked their lives on him. They followed him, even when it cost them their families, even when it cost them their place in society, even when it cost them their lives, even when they were fed to the lions or dipped in tar and impaled on stakes and lit on fire to light Nero's garden parties, they followed him. Why? Because they were astonished by him. Because no one ever said the things that this man said. And no one ever did the things that this man did. And no king ever served his people as sacrificially as this king served. Because no one ever lived a life of perfect holiness and humility and love like this man lived. And no one ever died selflessly for the sins of the world like this man died. And no king ever rose from the grave grave conquering sin and death and condemnation like this king did. Jesus set their hearts on fire with astonishment and amazement. And then he set the world on fire through them. Let me ask you, do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to have your heart and your life set on fire by Jesus? 
Charles Spurgeon is a pastor in London. He said this. He said, if Christ be anything, he must be everything. If Christ be anything, he must be everything. Can you say that? Can you say that Christ is everything? Can you say what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, that everything else is human refuse? Everything else, good things, bad things, the best things this world can offer me, everything else is less than worthless compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Can you say that? Have you experienced that? Have you experienced that astonishment and that amazement? Some of you here have. You've experienced that. Some of you maybe, by God's grace, are experiencing that for the first time today. So you're asking, what do I do with that? Because we've got to do something with this. And I don't know. I don't exactly know what it is that you need to do with that astonishment. For some of you, it means that you simply need to be baptized. For some of you, it means that you need to go public with your faith. It means that you need to declare, Jesus is my King. Jesus is Lord, and He's made me new. For some of us, it means that we need to give up some of those things that Jesus died to set us free from. We need to stop trying to live life just on our own terms, and we need to trust Jesus. We need to live under the authority of the one who died to give us life. For some of us, it means God's calling us to tell someone, to share the good news about this king. For some of you, it means like like Hannah, God's calling you to go to the nations. This is, this is why Jesus commissioned his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew to go to the nations. This is why we follow him to the ends of the earth. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. He says, I'm the king. I have all authority, and I deserve the worship of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and I have come to make all things right and to make all things new. We go because we are astonished by the authority of Jesus. For some of us, it simply means continuing to follow Jesus, continuing to be amazed by him in the ordinariness of everyday life. Because following Jesus isn't a one-time thing. It's a lifetime of walking with him. Being astonished by Jesus isn't just a one-time experience. It's coming face-to-face with who he is every day. Not in some sense of self-righteousness, but because we are amazed by his grace, because we have a king who died in our place and rose again in order to set us free and to make us fully alive. If, If we're honest with ourselves, I don't know if we're always astonished by Jesus. I I certainly don't think I am always astonished by Jesus. Even if you're a follower of Jesus, there are some days that you don't feel amazed by him. Here's one of the things, here's the comfort, one of the amazing things about Jesus is that he knows that. He is patient with that. He realizes that. He is patient with us in the midst of the struggle of everyday life. And he gives us ways to recapture that astonishment. Sometimes he does it in big, extraordinary ways. Sometimes he does it in very ordinary ways. He does it through bread. He does it through juice. This this, this is why we take the Lord's Supper. Do you know what? We're going to take this in just a minute. Here's why we do this. Here's why Jesus gave us this meal, because we are prone to forget. We are so prone to forget how astonishing he is. We are so prone to forget how amazing his grace is. And so he gives us this simple, ordinary meal to remind us how amazing his grace is, how extravagant his love is for us. 
So we're going to come in just a moment. We're going to separate the Lord's, uh, the, celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, spend some time. Spend some time thinking about the amazing grace of Jesus. Just spend some time. Bow your head and, and, in prayer and ask him, Jesus, astonish me again with who you are. And then come and take the Lord's Supper and be reminded how amazing he is. The way that we do that here, we have stations at the front. We'll have stations at the back. We simply come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, take it and dip it in the cup. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And if that's you, we simply encourage you to, to remain in your seat. But, 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 but don't check out during this time. This isn't just like that commercial break time. But ask yourself some of those questions. Ask yourself, what am I going to do with the claims of Jesus? How am I going to respond to him? Are there questions that I have? What's my plan for exploring those questions? If you want to talk with someone about that, if you want to explore that further, we would love to speak with you after the service. So let's pray. Take the Lord's Supper. Father, we confess that often we're not astonished by you. So often we're not astonished by Jesus. Lord, I feel my inadequacy in this because I can't, I can't make anyone feel astonished by Jesus or be astonished by Jesus. I can't make myself be astonished by you. Pray that your spirit would come that you would remind us how beautiful Jesus is, that you would impress deeply on our hearts the authority and the wonder and the grace and the beauty of this king, that you would set our hearts and our lives on fire with love for you, that it would change us to the core of who we are and that it would change everything about us. Lord, so often we live by our own authority. So often we try to be our own kings and our own gods and we praise you for the body of Jesus broken for us and his blood shed for us that forgives all of our sins and makes us right with you. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.